Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. We are in Ephesians chapter 4, and we have already covered a lot of, I think, very beneficial ground. So when we started in Ephesians 4, we began with the premise that we all struggle with understanding our identity, do we not? Who we are and uh, what we were made for. We have a hard time figuring those things out. But thankfully, as we've studied through Ephesians, God has told us some very important things about our identity as Christians. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, going back and just kind of recapping and re-grasping at those things, in Ephesians chapter 1, we learn that to be a Christian is to be redeemed. It's to be redeemed. And for those who have put their faith in Christ, God has blessed our lives by saving and making us beneficiaries of his kingdom. And so that's a really big deal. That is the, that is the revolutionary point in our whole lives. It's the, it is the moment of trans, transformation. It's the, it's the thing that makes us new is coming to Christ, believing on him, putting our faith in him, and knowing that he provides us with forgiveness of sin. And in that chapter, there's all these beautiful and wonderful things uh, that he he declares about us, and and, and he tells us all the ways in which he's blessed us. And so we, we started with this idea that, like, if we could just lay hold on that stuff... Like, if we could just rehearse those things and and believe those things about who we are, then that would do so much for changing our perspective. Our identity is absolutely wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so identity discovery number one, uh, as we've got laid laid out here, should be be in your notes. Um, And by the way, we're going to take a lot of notes today. Like, this is one of those bullet point sermons where I've got lists. I've got a lot of lists today, okay? So identity discovery number one is this. Our identity is reoriented by Christ and his redeeming love. To know that you are unconditionally loved by your Savior changes everything about who you are, and it reorients you. In Ephesians chapter 2, we learn that to be a Christian is to live in his grace, So many of us are stuck in worldly patterns of living, and we abuse his redemptive work by striving in our flesh for happiness and trying to to find purpose and happiness in the things that we do. And we get stuck there, and it causes us to lose sight of who Christ is to us, and we lose sight of his redeeming love. And so discovery number two is this. Our identity is reoriented by the freedom that comes from walking in grace. Our identity is is forever changed by learning how to walk in freedom and understanding his grace for what it is. Now, the beautiful thing is that in chapter 3, Paul uses himself as an example for us of how this works. And he begins to tell us that uh, from his own testimony about how he was completely unqualified, Uh, he he didn't measure up in anyone's eyes, in the, in the apostles or the saints' eyes, and among all the Christians, he was the lowest of all the Christians. And yet, because of Christ's grace in his life, he became a completely different person. He was empowered to do things and behave in a way that, that, that went beyond his understanding. And this is really what, what Seth was getting at last week. 
was that to walk in grace is to put away the shame of our past. And that grace really does cover every uh, aspect of who we are. So identity discovery number three is this. Our identity is reoriented by finding confidence in his calling. Whatever he's called us to be, that's what we are. That's what we are. Whatever Jesus says that you are, that's who you are. Whatever purposes that he's given you, that's, that's who and what you are. And so today we're going to look at how our identity is reoriented by determining who we will be in relation to our ministry and our church. Now here's the thing about identity. There are many things, you know, when you, when you were born, there was a lot of things that were determined for you, right? Your parents were determined for you. Where you lived was determined for you. What part of the world that you grew up in, what schools that you would go to, a lot of things are determined for you. But who you are, in light of all those things, is absolutely determined by what you decide to do with yourself. Right? And so the same thing is true in our walk with Jesus Christ. Christ has called us to a particular identity. He's called us his children. He's given us grace. He's blessed us. And he's prepared a way for us. He's called us unto a vocation. But how you behave yourself in light of that calling is up to you. And so much of your identity, it's not just what Christ says that you are, but it's what you determine about yourself. And that's really the page that we're turning into now as we continue on with Ephesians is that so much about who you are is determined by what you decide that you're going to do with yourself and in light of what, of what you understand about yourself, right? So for many of us, uh, for many of us, we've come to believe that our personality is fixed, that it's fixed. And I'd say to some degree, uh, we know that some of our qualities of our personality are imprinted on us, right? Like they have a lot to do with genetics and, and the way that we were nurtured and raised and just there's like, a, you know, your soul is interesting. You're very unique and God made you to be unique and there's things about you that just are, right? And, and, and I, I believe that. But, but the problem is that in our world today that we believe that personality is fixed. And what I mean by that is that we convinced ourselves that that there, there is no room for change as it concerns our personality. The convenient lie that we have bought today and the thing that we believe is that our identity is fluid and yet our personality is fixed. Isn't that weird? But the truth is that it's the exact opposite. Is that for the Christian, our identity is fixed, but our personality is fluid. We get to decide who we're going to be. So don't buy the lie. And so what we're going to learn today is that God wants the manner of our character to match the manner of his son's character. And that our lifestyle and behavior should be becoming of the vocation that he's employed us for. That has to be true. And so let's dig in. Let's read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's get a glimpse of what we're studying here. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, as, as chapter 3 closes, as we, we just wrapped that up two weeks ago, as chapter 3 closed, Paul was describing for us in depth what it is that God called him to do and be. God was very explicit with Paul. And he said, look, look, this is who I want you to be moving forward. This is what I've called you to do. This is what your life's work is going to be about. Here is your job. This is the job that I've given you to do. And so when he began talking about his vocation, he brought up several things. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, he declares that he was made to be an evangelist. Paul, Paul tells us, he's like, look, my job is to go and to reveal the gospel to the Gentiles. My job is to preach about Jesus Christ everywhere that I go. And we know from the testimony of the book of Acts that that's exactly what he did. That's what he made his life about. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, he goes on to say that he was made to be a disciple maker. He was made to be a disciple maker. He was made to, to invest in the lives of other people in a very intimate and personal way teaching them the truths of God's word so that they might themselves go be disciple makers. And we know for a fact by just reading the record of both Acts and the New Testament, seeing who he was, seeing who Paul was to Timothy and Titus and, and men like that, that the apostle Paul really did devote his life to disciple making. I mean, we are a testament to that. We are a testament to that. The investment that Paul make was, was propagated time and time again. It multiplied to the point that we have the gospel now right here in Kansas City and we have a local church. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, he declares that he was made to be a person of prayer. That he was to devote his life to being a prayer warrior and that he, that he was called to come boldly before the throne of Christ. Now, here's the thing about all of these vocations that Paul believed about himself. What he's implying here is that all of these things are true about you, too. That this is our vocation. This is our job. This is what Christians have been made to do for 2,000 years now. We each play an integral role. We've each been employed to achieve these exact outcomes in our ministry. That's what we've been called to do. To seek and to save the lost, to teach them the way of Christ, and to devote ourselves personally to an intimate yet reverent relationship with Jesus through prayer. Now today, we will learn that there are greater implications to our calling than this. Deeper expectations in particular, that our character and personal behavior impacts our effectiveness in our vocation. I recently, I recently heard a story uh, about a young firefighter who um, was new, just a brand new firefighter. He'd only been at it for a certain time. He'd just come through training, who uh, went to a party and got really drunk, right? Um, as firefighters are prone to do. Am I right, bro? Josh, is that right, Joshua? <laughs> um, so, so he goes to a party, and there were photos taken of him, and they were posted on social media. Now, the problem 
lies in that the fact that all the photos that were taken of him, uh, he was wearing a t-shirt that said, city name, firefighter. So for sake of example, Overland Park, firefighter in the pictures. And they got posted all over the internet. This guy goofing off, acting like a complete fool. And because of this, he was fired. He was fired from his job. Now, I am sure that there are lots of misbehaving firefighters out there. But this young man had the guts to misbehave while also actively declaring his fealty to the high calling of a public servant. That was the mistake that he made. Was that he... He was making a declaration about who he was. And the problem was that his behavior was unbecoming of his vocation. Now here's the deal. Even the world knows that our character and our identity are bound together. Even the world gets that. Even the world understands that. That character and identity are two sides to the same coin. But see, here's the problem. This is the problem with so many Christians, with how they relate to their Christianity. Too many people are declaring their faith. They identify themselves with the high calling of Christ. But in terms of their character and behavior, slander their Christ. They slander him. And they malign the integrity of their vocation. They're hypocrites. Too many Christians are hypocrites. They call themselves Christian, and yet their behavior, their conduct, their manner looks nothing like Christ. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now let's start here. Paul once again reminds his readers first of the nature of his state. He says, I'm a prisoner. Now, why is this so important? Why does he need to keep bringing this up throughout the book? Because he wants us to understand that he is a living example. He wants his readers to count the cost of the mission. He wants them to see that the possibility of their devotion might lead this way. Now, he doesn't want to frighten them, but he does want to dispel any charming or glamorous notions of ministry. He wants them to understand that to be a Christian is to suffer, that it's going to be difficult. And so, that you, so what he's trying to do here is he's saying is like, I want you to understand that I'm identifying with my imprisonment. I'm identifying with it. And I want you to identify with the possibility of suffering yourself. So just him bringing up that he's a prisoner over and over again in this letter is, is important for us to understand our identity. That we too need to understand that if Christ has called us into his service, that that might cost us some things and it might hurt along the way. That it might be really difficult. And so he's reminding of, uh, us of that over and over again. See, it's healthy for us to look ahead. It's healthy for us to imagine the potential pain that a servant of Christ might face. And then, with eyes wide open, conclude that it's all worth it. That if he's going to call us into the greatest adventure that we could ever be called into, that there might be suffering along the way. Every good adventure has some pain. Everything worth it 
has a struggle. Now further, he beseeches them. He pleads with them that they would walk worthy of their vocation. And the idea here is that day to day, their behavior should be acceptable in light of the name that's written across their chest. That they would walk worthy of what they declare. You understand? And that our lives and our lifestyle would be acceptable in Christ. And that our behavior would not deter or detriment or diminish, but enhance the gospel message. And so here's our very first key point, and this is a, one of the, the, the concepts that we're going to work from, is that we, we as Christians on a mission are to behave in a way that reflects our identity in Christ. On Tuesday, um, you know, pa- uh, Tuesday at the prayer service, Pastor Chris Best reminded us of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 9. And he camped out there, and he reminded us that we are to be farmers and builders and runners. Was anybody there for that? And so he, he spent some time there, and, and, and I was thinking about that this week, and, and, I, um, and I wrote a few things down, and, and I, I think there's something really interesting about these three different illustrations of our vocation, if you will. If we're talking about vocation, farmer, builder, runner, these are occupations. These are jobs. These are things that we are called to do. And so I was seeing that in light of what we were studying, and I was thinking about that. I was reflecting on that. And so here's here's what I want to point out. First of all, that farming is a vocation that is horizontal, right? A farmer works a field, a plot of land. It's a horizontal work. It's an earthy work, if you will. So farming is a vocation that's horizontal, and it's intended to illustrate our work in the multiplying of the church, right? A farmer is to be fruitful. Their field is to be bountiful, right? And so they do a horizontal work. They plow and they work a field in order to multiply the number of people that are added to the church. Now, I think that's interesting because a builder, a builder is a vocation that is vertical, Right? A builder works, they set a foundation, and they build upward. Building is a vocation that's vertical. And it's intended to illustrate for us the work in making worshipers in Christ's church. In other words, those people that are added to the church need to become worshipers with an upward focus. And as we invest in them and we disciple them and we prepare them, their hearts should be turned towards the Lord and worship because the thing that he's always wanted from the beginning of time is to add worshipers to his kingdom. And so as builders, we build into men that they might become worshipers of Christ. It's got a vertical focus. Now running, running is a vocation that is linear and it's time-oriented. And it's intended to illustrate for us the urgency And the need for consistency in our calling. See, runners move. They're not stagnant. They don't work in one place. They're not working a plot of ground. They're not building a building. They're moving. It's time-oriented. And it requires movement over distance and over time. In order to be good at, at running, there has to be a sense of urgency and discipline. And so... If this is the three-dimensional nature of our calling, of our vocation, 
then the question is, are you walking worthy of the vocation itself? Does your character reflect the integrity of the true husbandman? Does your character reflect the integrity of the master builder? And does your character reflect the integrity of the keeper of time? Do you look like Christ? It's one, it, listen, y'all, listen to me. This is the thing that we've got to get here. A lot of us show up on Sundays, on Tuesdays, throughout the week, to do work, to do Bible study, to do discipleship, to meet people at the coffee shop and, and to talk and to pray. And, and we do this work, the work of our vocation. But so many of us are struggling to reflect the character necessary to be blessed in the work of our vocation. We ask ourselves, why haven't I been fruitful why do I not feel any peace? Why, is there some, why does there seem to be something off in the ministry that I do? And I, and I wonder, I wonder if there's something that you're keeping from Christ. I wonder if you're keeping your personality from him. That the one thing you're holding back is true change, inwardly. And I think as, as, as time passes, as we do the work of the ministry, as discipleship is kind of in the rearview mirror. I think we have a tendency to become very works-based in our perspective, and we begin to lose sight of the inward man. And I think it affects our ability to be blessed in the work. So here's the question. How will you walk? How will you walk? Philippians 3.17 says, Brethren, be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk, which walk so as ye have have us for an example. So what he's saying is, is, hey, look. Look at what the other people in leadership, those that you revere, the men and women that you revere in the work of ministry, look at what they do and look at how they walk and walk like them. Walk like them. And then he contrasts that in verse 18 by saying, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation, our lifestyle, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it, be, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Look, there's two different ways you can walk. You can walk like the world, or you can walk like those who've been called in the mission of Christ. Two ways to walk, and you get to choose. You get to choose. And believe it or not, there are people that come to church every single Sunday, and they sit down in this room, and they live as though God has never saved them from their sin. They're hiding things, they're holding back things. There's things that they don't want to change. There's things that they don't want to change about their personality, about their character. There are things that they're holding tight in their fist. He 
You know, the, the Old Testament, the dynamic of God's relationship with his people was, if you obey me, I will bless you. I mean, that, that was, if you've read the Old Testament, you recognize that there's all these promises to, to, the Israel, uh, to the nation of Israel that sound like, hey, look, if you just would just obey me, then I could bless you. But it's funny, that, that dynamic has flipped in the New Testament. In the New Testament, what, what God says to us is, look, is, look, because I've blessed you, obey me. I've blessed you. I've given you grace. I've, I've called you my son. I've given you an inheritance. I've, I've called you into my family. I've changed everything about your life. Now, would you just obey me? And listen to me. There's some Christians who will take the free gift of God and they will leave a black eye on Christ because they live their entire lives as though they're not saved. God forbid. God forbid. We should walk worthy of the work that we've been called to. So what does that look like? Now to address, address what that looks like, let's, let's turn to this list of character qualities that should be true of us. Now, according to what we've studied so far in the book of Ephesians, it would be completely appropriate for us to say that when we live out our job, we're living in grace and blessing. Like to, to truly live out the vocation and to walk worthy is to walk in grace and the blessing of Christ. And as we study this list, what I want you to discover is that, that essentially all these things are byproducts of living in the grace of Christ. Truly understanding what he's called us to be and just living it out. To know that we've been forgiven, to know that he's, he's loving us and, and that he's for us and that he's promised us heaven. And to live in light of that is to live out these character traits. In other words, a grace-filled behavior produces deeper and stronger work and a tighter unity in the body of Christ. So let's begin at the top. Okay, now here, here's where the list comes in. You guys ready to take notes? Okay, the very first thing is loneliness. Loneliness. If we're going to reflect the value of our calling and the power of God's grace, lowliness is an absolute imperative. This word lowliness is used twice in English in our Bible and three times in Greek. And it's always translated two ways, either lowliness or humility. And so it's safe to say that, that lowliness and humility, these are synonyms. These are synonyms of each other. Um, but... but but the unique variation of the word lowliness reflects, I think, a really important understanding, and it's this. The word lowliness is, is, a, is pictorial in nature. Like, you can visualize it. Like, humility is a word that represents a certain thing. But when we say lowliness, we can actually picture what that looks like. We can actually visualize that. And it reminds us that humility is the quality of making yourself lower than Christ and lower than other people. Putting yourself below Christ and below your brothers and sisters in Christ and below the lost that we minister to. Putting us low. So in the broader conversation about identity, lowliness is an, is an important topic because humility begins first with a battle for our mind and how we see ourselves in light of Christ and other people. It starts there. It starts right here. It starts in the mind because we have to decide up here 
how we are going to understand ourselves in light of the people that we engage with and the Christ that saved us. And so, so, Scripture, you know, it often addresses this term lowliness or humility in terms of our mind. Look at these, look at these verses. I want to point them out real quick to you. Acts 20, 19 says this, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. So this phrase is used by Paul when, when telling his story. And he says, listen, he uses this phrase that he has to have humility of mind. He has to have humility with his decider, with his brain. It starts there. Humility starts there. You, can, you know you can feign humility, right? You can pretend to be humble. And in certain moments, it's really easy to do. I mean, some of us show up to church on Sunday and we're like, and we put, we put, we put on humbleness. Like it's a Chiefs jersey. We're just like, oh, it's the Super Bowl today. So I wear, you haven't worn that jersey since last year at this time. <laughs> you just put it on and you're a fan. Oh, suddenly you're a fan. <laughs> We're real convinced. Now listen, that's what, we do, that's what we do with humility. We show up to church and we put it on and we, and we pretend at it. We can feign it for an hour or two. But how many of us are truly humble people? If you want to be humble, listen to me, it starts here. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. I think it's really important for us to understand that in order to become humble people, we have to first understand what humbleness looks like up here. We have to rehearse it. We have to think about it. We have, we have to reflect on it. We have to, we have to picture it in light of our relationships. Does this make sense? And so I think, I think you know, in order to become humble, this is what it looks like. If we're gonna, if we're gonna be, become humble in mind, I believe that these few steps will help us to get there. The first thing is this, you need to know yourself. Know yourself. In other words, you need to understand your strengths and weaknesses. You need need to understand what are your strengths and weaknesses. Do you? Now, here's how it usually works for people in their flesh. They either focus too much on their strengths or they focus too much on their weaknesses, never both at the same time. Like most people want to fixate on their strengths in order to puff themselves up and feel more confident. You know, that's how you feign confidence is you just convince yourself that you're really strong and that you can do anything. But then there's some people, and like, let's just be honest, most of the people in your generation focus primarily on your weaknesses. And so you fixate on your weaknesses and then you never get anywhere because all you do is see yourself in terms of of your inability. Now, what I'm asking, and what I believe Christ is asking when we talk about humbleness of mind, is we first begin to understand that we have strengths and we have weaknesses, and that, and that really none of those things are relevant if we yield to Christ. Because He is our strength. And any weaknesses or deficiencies that we, deficiencies that we might have, he, 
He fills that with grace. So we have to know who God made, you, uh, made us to be. That's the other part of this. Know yourself. Who has God made you to be? Do you know your gifts? Do you ever think about or reflect on how life and circumstances have formed you and affected you? You know, we talked about this early on in our, in our, in our study in, in Ephesians. We talked about how so many of us are affected by things that have happened to us. Now, we started today's sermon even addressing this. There are things that happen to you in life that really suck. Really difficult things. And because we don't grapple with those things before the Lord, and we don't learn how to trust those things to him, we don't ever really understand them. And so we struggle to understand who we are. Right? Does this make sense? I mean, so many of us are so preoccupied with doing crap all the time that you don't ever stay quiet enough in your heart before the Lord that you could ever even know yourself. I mean, some, some of us, the, the reason we have identity issues is because we won't still ourselves long enough to simply be with Christ. We don't understand who we are or what we're supposed to do. We don't understand our gifting. We have no idea what our strengths and weaknesses are. And we just go along in life, playing along, Because we just, we just, we don't sit long enough with the Lord to know who we are. So the very first thing is you need to know yourself. The next thing is you need to accept yourself. You need to accept yourself. You need to be okay with who you are and not think too highly and not think too ill of yourself. Okay? So squash the self-hate and squash the arrogance. You need to know yourself and accept yourself because both conceptions of self will produce hatred and arrogance. They will. If you think too highly, you'll become arrogant. If you think too lowly of yourself, well, you'll become hateful. And that, that's what will, will be produced. The next thing is this. You need to be yourself. Behave in a way that reflects your gifting and the personality that God's given you. Now, there's an aspect of personality that's absolutely innate. We talked about this already. There are things that I really value about everybody's personality that I know, you know? And I love getting to know people and, I, and learning their personality. Like Arjo and I hung out recently. And I, and I feel like I'm learning who he is, right? I'm beginning to understand him, okay? I've known, and on the flip side of that, I've known Alex since he was like eight years old, it feels like. But since you were what, 15, 16? Now, I want to say this. I'm just going to use Alex because he's sitting right here. It's easy for me to do. I've seen Alex's personality remain the same and change. I've seen God take who Alex is and heighten aspects of his personality in order for him to be better fit to his gifting. And then I've seen, I've seen Alex die to some of his personality traits in order to be more Christ-like. Does this make sense to everybody? This is, this is who we ought to be. This is, this is who we ought to be. We need to sit down and know ourselves. We need to accept ourselves, and we need to be ourselves. But so many of us, when we say be ourselves, that, that's, you, that's you making excuse to do whatever you want to do. Uh, be yourself. So that means I get to be rude, loud, obnoxious, 
I get to play the fool? I get to, to joke around all the time and make light of serious situations? No. No, that's the personality that you need to die to. Because those are character deficiencies, and they're unbecoming of your vocation. So it's okay to be yourself as long as yourself is conforming to Christ. And here's the last thing. You need to bridle yourself, and this is really what I've already been talking about. You need to bridle yourself. Yield your personality and passions to the control of the Spirit. So that what comes out of you is a balanced and moderated version of you, drenched in the loneliness of a servant. Right? That's what James 3.2 talks about. We need to be balanced and moderate. And so this is how we become lowly. This is how we become humble people. We need to determine in our mind who we really are. And then here's the deal. We need to see that version of ourselves in the congregation of believers. We need to function rightly, which is what we're going to get to as we, as we keep going. Next, meekness. Meekness. We, we're often reminded um, that to be meek is not the same thing as being weak, right? We hear that a lot. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you've been around church for a while. You're like, oh, you know, some old guy is like who sees himself as particularly masculine is going to say, oh, you know, meekness isn't weakness. Yeah? <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's true. Some of the strongest and most virtuous characters in Scripture were described as meek. Moses, um, who confronted kings, went, I mean, went to Pharaoh's face, right? He didn't even want to. He did it anyway. He confronted kings and he waged battle and was a meek, a meek man. Numbers 12, 3 says, now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So clearly, to be meek is not to be weak. Paul, Paul, Paul also confronted kings. He took the sufferings of the church on his back, and yet he was meek. 2 Corinthians 10, 1, it says, now I, Paul, uh, now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in, pre in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. So he is telling us that he has the ability to, to be meek and function in meekness, despite the fact that he's clearly bold. And he can be a tough guy when he needs to be. Jesus, uh, who also confronted kings, turned the changers' tables and endured the scourging and the sting of the cross, and yet was a meek man and savior. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, you also hear sometimes people will say, uh, they'll define meekness this way. They'll say that meekness is power under control. But I, and I think that that's probably kind of true. But as I, as I study scripture, I didn't really see that definition. I don't, I don't know how biblical that definition is. I kind of get it. It's in a broad and abstract way, maybe. But I think it's too tidy. I think it's too tidy of a definition. And so I'm going to give you a different one. And that's this. Meekness, as far as I see it in scripture, is when strength and courage and virtue are exercised by serving into the weaknesses of other people. 
In other words, meek people, they don't, dis, they don't suspend their power. I think that that's what the other definition leads us to believe, is that meek people somehow suspend their strength in order to be gentle. And I don't think that that's what Scripture teaches. I think that what they do is that their power is just exercised in a particular way, and that is to serve others. And that, too, is strength. That is, that is no less power than than the flipping over of changers' tables. And to me, it reflects the power of Christ on the cross. Was Christ powerful on the cross? Well, Christ on the cross was serving others. He made himself a sacrifice. He made himself meek. And that's, that is how his, his power expressed itself, is through meekness. See, meek people, they don't, they don't suspend their power, but by grace, they pour it out as a sacrifice for the sake of other people. So, you, you know, as we go through these, are you meek? Well, we'll be able to tell by the way in which you serve other people. Next is long-suffering. It says meekness with long-suffering. So these two things go hand in hand. Long-suffering is quite literally to suffer long to endure discomfort for the sake of the gospel. To endure discomfort for the sake of the gospel. Now let's be honest with ourselves. Some of you are unwilling to endure discomfort for the sake of the gospel. And how do I know? Well, you won't endure hardness to even get to church. I mean, you won't endure the discomfort of laying aside you time in order to be at Bible study. I mean, you, you, you're not even willing to lay down discomfort long enough to sign up for a ministry and serve. Let alone endure discomfort in deep and meaningful relationships with other people giving your life to counseling and meeting with people, making yourself vulnerable in every way. Why? For the sake of the gospel. I mean, either what, I, what I'm saying is preaching real well or preaching real bad because you guys are super quiet today. <laughs> we need to suffer long. We need to be willing to love people so much that we're willing to go through really difficult things. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Charity suffereth long. That's what, that's what love does. It suffers long and it's kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. So you have to really love souls and the gospel greater, greater than the conditions or afflictions that you face. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us struggle with people? We struggle with people. I, I didn't, I, yes, y'all just went for it. You raised your hands. You're like, yeah. <laughs> I hate most people. <laughs> I've, I've met three people I like ever. Okay, so we struggle with people. 
We're easily frustrated by them. We're hurt by them. We're disappointed by them. They neglect us. And you have a list of people right now in your mind that you avoid. You avoid them. You don't even want to be around them. Now, these feelings are generally a mark of severe immaturity in our character. So how do we change that? How do we gain long-suffering? Well, first, we have to experience real suffering. I mean, some of us have never experienced real suffering, so we invent suffering. We play the martyr in situations in our life. We just make up suffering. We, have, we create crisis because we don't know what true suffering is. That's the first problem. But the other thing is that some of us just need to learn how to walk in the Spirit. The call to long-suffering reveals that there's a, a relationship, there's a connection between walking worthy of our vocation and walking in the Spirit. The two things are related. They produce similar outcomes. Galatians 5.22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, which we've already talked about, temperance. Against such, there is no law. You can't just put that on. You can't just obey some sort of law and then suddenly look like this. And they that are, that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So some of us, we want to, we want to, learn, to, we want to learn to suffer long with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to walk worthy of our vocation. Okay, listen to me. Walk in the Spirit. We talked about this two weeks ago. You walk in the Spirit by yielding to the Word. By yielding to what the book says. By using it as a looking glass to reveal to us our weaknesses and then trust the Lord for his strengths. Yep. Am I giving you too much? This is too much, isn't it? It is. It's okay. If it is, it's, it's only three verses. You realize that, right? We're just covering three verses today. We need more. Okay. All right. Here's more. All right. Number four. Forbearing one another in love. Okay. I've only got five minutes here, so we got to get it. Forbearing one another in love. Now, many times, many times, people will test the limits of your love, won't they? They will test the strength of your meekness. They'll test it. People will harm us. They will hurt us, and they'll tear us down. And some people, they just won't hear reason, will they? I mean, if you've done ministry for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are some people that they hurt you and they do bad things and they won't even hear reasonable talk. You can't sit down with them and you can't logically explain to them by what, about why what they're doing is bad. They don't get it. They won't receive admonition as a brother or sister. And when you speak, when you speak into their life and you give them life, whether it's by immaturity or pride, they can't see their own wrongs. And so when, when that happens, when we're investing in people and it seems like they won't hear us and they won't, they won't take rebuke or they won't receive counsel, you've got two options. You know that, right? There's only two. One is to throw them away, which some of you do because you're immature and you're not walking worthy of your vocation. So that's option number one, throw them away. Just don't have anything to do with them anymore. Don't go to their Bible study anymore. Don't hang around them. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't know. 
So you could be that, you could be that, or, or you could forbear. That's the other option. We find a great illustration of this in the first mention of the word forbear. Exodus 23, 4, it says this. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, and that's how some of you guys feel about these people. <laughs> if thou meet thy enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Oh, you, you, you okay, so you got to imagine for this. Like you're like a farmer. You're like, this is an agricultural time period, right? And you're out there and you see your enemy's ass or his ox and it's gone astray. That's your enemy. And then you bring it back to them. You choose to do the right thing. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. So what we discover is that forbearing means to put aside the drama knowing that it will serve everyone better to simply forgive the wrong. In these moments, we do more than just long-suffering. We must die to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And here's the thing that you need to take note of. Forbearing is when you decide that the burden of relationship and circumstance, okay, tough relationships and tough circumstances, is actually light to carry. Light enough for you to carry without the need for confrontation or mutual reconciliation. This, listen to me, forbearance is like the height of maturity. You don't need to confront them. You don't need to tell them what's up. Right? You can simply let it go. There's no need for mutual reconciliation because you've reconciled it in your own heart. That all is good with you. That's what forbearance is. In other words, it's one-sided reconciliation. It's an act of love and strength with nothing in return. It's to choose, listen to me, to choose to bear the burden alone. That's a righteous thing. That's a Christ-like thing. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, Humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. To forbear is when grace causes you to forgive and forget, to refrain from bringing it up, or acting differently despite what happened to you. Can you do that? Five. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This phrase is so rich, and I'm going to have to be quick. Endeavoring means to exert with haste or to apply energy and resource with a sense of urgency. That's what endeavoring is. So to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit means that we are responsible. We, as believers, are responsible for protecting and maintaining the unity that the spirit has so graciously provided us in his church. Now look around. Look around this room. Look at what we have. This is a ministry of people that love each other. This is a, this is a ministry that, that time and time again, I've seen the care, the mutual care that you have for one another. Praise God. People completely different from one another. Different races, different backgrounds, different nations that you're coming from. And yet love. 
Do you value that? Are you willing to fight for that? Are you willing to endeavor for that? You know, Satan hates it. Satan hates it. Satan spends almost all of his time trying to break up churches. And he's good at it. He's really good at it. Further, it says the bond of peace, which means that that we are bound by obligation to maintain the peace that the Spirit has given us. It's a bond. Our salvation, it put us in a family. And our agreement with God concerning the gospel was also an arrangement to be within a family. We are bound to that family and we are bound to peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. The Spirit loves unity, and so should we. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. See, we have to do everything we can do to support and defend the unity of this ministry and our church. Where there is disunity, there can be no fruit. No fruit. Here's the key point. Our character, all these things that we've talked about, our character must be bound up in our calling in Christ, the source of grace and love. The way we act, the way we behave, our lifestyle, it must be sourced in Christ and his love and grace. You remember when you started your first real job? You remember that? You got up early for like the first time in your life (laughs) to be there like 30 minutes early. You got there like real early just to be there, sit at your desk, wait for other people to show up, I guess. You say hello to people at your job. You smile at them. You clean up after other people. You go the extra mile. Why? Because you're thankful for your job. And you want your boss to know that you're working hard for them. Remember that? That lasted like a month. You were willing at one point to change your habits and behavior and even your personality because of your vocation, because of your job. But a job will lose its shine. And shame on the Christian who's forgotten that Christ wants to change them in order to make them better fit the calling he's called them to. I want to invite the worship team up. And as they come up, I want to ask a few questions that are really important, very personal questions. Okay? Listen, where have we failed grace in our behavior? Where have we failed grace in our behavior? You know, grace has never failed us. Grace is always there waiting on us. But we often fail grace when our personality is carnal rather than Christ-like. Is our behavior becoming of our vocation? Is our character somehow preventing unity in this body? Some of us, listen to me, some of us are unwilling to mature. And you know how you're doing it. You're, you're mounting a little personal rebellion. Maybe it's in your discipleship relationship. Maybe in discipleship you've come across something really hard and difficult. And you're holding on to some past view or presumption really tight. 
Or maybe a brother and sister in Christ has come to you and pointed out some area of weakness or area of sin, and you've refused it. You've refused to listen because you're so proud that you can't think for a second that there's anything about you that needs to change. Now, maybe you're on the other side of that. You're the person ministering. You're, you're doing all this work. You're, you're serving the Lord, and, and you're giving your life for the sake of ministry, and you feel hurt all the time that people don't just do whatever you say. The ministry is just not going the way you want, and it's difficult, and you have to suffer for it. Well, listen. Be low. Be meek. Long suffer. Forbear. And endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Yeah? Yeah. So let's, let's, let's go before the Lord. And as we, as we pray and as we worship, there'll be counselors. There'll be people standing up here. Let's reckon some things right today. Can we? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you, uh, Lord, I know that there's a lot of people that got Super Bowl parties to get ready for, and I don't, like, they got dip they've got to make. I don't, and, uh, and yet they're here, and I think that you want to speak to them. So, Lord, please make us in no hurry to leave your presence. Help us to settle some things right. I mean, there's so many of us that want to work for you, but we don't want to be like you. You know, we want the benefits of being a part of church, but we don't, wanna, we don't want to be meek and humble and strive for unity. What's the matter with us, Lord? Call us out. Call us out right now. Help us to get things right. Help us to look like the way you want us to. Help us to, help us to put on Christ. We're trusting you with this. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.